Let's get in the word. Get your Bibles out, my friends. Let's get, what's wrong? Still down. Come on. I want to fire our webmaster. That's me. That's me. That's me. Anybody want to volunteer to take that one over? Definitely will do a better job. Come on. Here we go. Let's go. Uh, get your Bibles. We're going to be in the, in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, this morning. I was going to tell a story to start it off, and I forgot what I was going to tell. Man. Oh, no. Okay. Let me just read it to us. I'll read the word. That's good enough. Let's read the word. Luke, chapter 2. Beginning in verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for the day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus, <laughs> Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Okay. All right. I need my water. So, uh, so I'm, we're not, we're not a, a real liturgical church here. Some of you have, have sort of grown up in, in um, more high church traditions. Um, but we do, one second. Sorry, throat. But we, you obviously know the term Advent. You know when we say Advent season, you know that that refers to the, the four weeks or so leading up to Christmas. And many of you have heard the name Lent. You know what Lent is. The Lenten season is that season, seven weeks, I believe, from Ash Wednesday leading up to, to Easter. And then there's even sort of an after, there's a Pentecost season up to Pentecost. There's actually a term for that in-between period, kind of beginning now, or actually beginning in, what, another week or so after the, um, the Feast of Epiphany, from that time up until Lent, there's a term in church history for that season, and that same term applies to that sort of after Pentecost into the summer, early fall. Anybody know what that time is called? It's called ordinary time. If you're from a Catholic background, maybe you remember that. So we've come out of the Advent season, and as soon as the, 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 the Sunday of Epiphany happens, you know, that, the, the epiphany, it's, it's that, that commemorates when Jesus was presented at the temple as a baby. But after that, up until early spring and Lent, we are moving into ordinary time. 
Amen to that. Y'all, I need some, or, I need some ordinary time for real. Like, I, we were shopping in, I don't know, wherever it was. Uh, take your pick. Walmart, Target, Kroger. Christmas stuff everywhere. But guess what's already on the shelves? Valentine's is already there. A whole row of it. A whole end cap full of stuff. It's like, you gotta be kidding me. We just go from, like, one thing to the next. Let's go from one holiday and like skip over things and go to the next. And if you're in stores, you're already doing that. And if you're a professional pastor, then you're already thinking about the, ad, the, the, the Easter season. You're already planning for it. You've already, if you're a big choir director, you've already got the Easter cantata. You know what a cantata is? Does anybody do cantatas anymore? It's not ordinary. No, it's like you just kind of jump from one thing to the next and, and, and like there's a whole lot of in between in that ordinary space. And what I just read to you is like the gospel's ordinary time. And to be honest, it's about a good 30 years worth of ordinary. No, actually, 30 minus 12 is what, 18? It's a good 18 years of ordinary time in Jesus' life. And we just sort of skip. And the other gospel writers don't include this. Luke is the one who includes this little brief story, but this little brief story encapsulates a whole lot of Jesus' very insignificant, very ordinary childhood and adolescence. And I just feel like the Lord said, look, it's okay to kind of land here for a little bit and see what the Spirit wants to say to us in that. This is the only account of Jesus' childhood in, 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 our, in our canon, the Catholics have the Apocrypha, and it's got some books inside of that that, that have some stories. But in, in, the, in the New Testament canon, it's the only account of Jesus' childhood. And Luke is the only gospel writer to include it. And it's one of our only glimpses into the ordinary life of Jesus. When I was in... Seventh grade, I believe. I was in, in Jackson, Mississippi. We'd been living there a few years, you know, and traveled around a lot. I was a very sheltered child, um, public school, but still relative. And I remember when in seventh grade, I got a little, a little card in the mail, or not in the mail, but a friend at school named Leah handed me a little card with my name on it. You know, I figured it was a birthday party or something else. Um, and I opened it up, and it was an invitation to something I'd never heard. I had to go and ask my mom and dad. Mom and dad, what is this? It's a language I don't understand. And they said, oh, it's a bat mitzvah. It's two words, bat, B-A-T, and then mitzvah, however you spell that. I was like, what is that? My mom and dad had to explain this to me. And I would, later on, I would learn that this is a, a, a custom in, in Judaism where young boys and girls of age, you know, relative, what, 12, 13, however they are, um, this is a special ceremony when they are sort of presented to the faith community as being um, sort of almost grown members, you know, they're, they're, they're accountable and they're, they're sort of responsible um, members of that faith community. It's, it was a big deal, you know, and, the, for, and I, would, I would study this later on. I would learn what those words actually mean. Bat means daughter. And if you are a young boy in Judaism, you would have a bar mitzvah. You've heard that term before. Bar means son and bat means daughter and mitzvah means law. Um, and so literally, you were becoming a son or a daughter of the law. And uh, this is, a, this is a, a tradition going going back, obviously, many, many, many centuries. And 
you know, the, the traditions have changed over time, but generally speaking, uh, for your bar mitzvah, it would be expected that you would have presented, uh, memorized large passages of the Torah. You're reciting, um, you know, reciting the, the, the Shema. You're reciting parts of the Pentateuch. You're reciting a lot of these large parts uh, of the scripture, answering questions. And during your bar mitzvah, you would go and the, 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 the rabbis would question you and ask you questions, almost like a catechism, you know. Uh, and you would, be, you would be, be expected to answer those. You would have a lot of preparation. And there's a big celebration. Um, and some, some, scholar, some scholars say that, that the roots of this go back even before the time of Jesus, you know, even into the, to the Old Testament when, when their sons and daughters were um, being trained. Um, it's, it's, it's likely or it's possible that the significance of Jesus doing this when he is 12 years old has some connection to this coming of age ritual in Judaism for him. The Bible makes it clear that this is a, at a certain age, in a certain time, he's coming into the temple and being questioned by the rabbis. And I'll get into that a little bit more. But first, I, I want to kind of walk through the text some and then just give some takeaways for us. Uh, it says that they went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. This is one of three uh, pilgrim, pilgrimages required of, of, of Jewish families in Jesus' day. Passover and Pentecost in the spring, and then, of course, tabernacles in the fall. Um, by the time of Jesus, it really had been reduced down to just one. If you can make, you don't have to, if you, if you have to make one, get there for Passover. Get there for Passover. Um, Ideally, you'd go for a lot more, but at least it was expected every family make your way to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And Jesus, of course, would have done this. They would have done this every year. He and his family would have made this trip every year. They would load up, you know, sort of like my family and I were getting packed up. We're getting our, our clothes and all of our things. We're loading up our, 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 our truck and car. We're going to drive whatever, seven, eight, nine hours to South Carolina here soon. And um, Jesus and his family would have done the same thing, packed up and, and taken their caravan of all of their family and all of their friends and cousins and relatives and anybody that was able, anybody that could walk, get to Jerusalem, get to the holy city for Passover. And they would have done this every year. So this was not his first time in going. That's my point. He would have done this a good 11 times <laughs> before this year, right? Um. And as I said, following his, following his circumcision on the eighth day, the bar mitzvah, this coming of age celebration, would have been one of the most significant events in his young life. He has now reached the age of accountability. He's now reached the age of responsibility. He is considered a young man um, in the eyes of the law. So they make their way, they go up there. Bible doesn't tell us exactly what they do, but it's, it's, a, it's a big event. All the family, all the people are there. The Bible tells us then uh, that, that when it's over, his parents are returning home. It says that he stays behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. I won't ask if that's ever happened to you, but it did happen to my family once. I have a, my brother, Brian, is two years older than me, and we were traveling home. We were in Louisiana, heading back to Indiana, where we were living. And my cousins, you know, two or three cars worth of, of people. And we had stopped at a rest area along the way, you know. Um, and lo and behold, Brian did not make it back into our car. And 
I think mom and dad thought he was with his cousins in the other car, and his cousins thought he was with us. And this was obviously before the days of cell phones. You don't have the text, you can't text. You know, so you just, <laughs> you just assume kid's going to be there when he's supposed to be there. You know, you don't really realize it until you pull over for gas a good hour and a half later. Where's Brian Ray? And it was absolute panic. And many laws were broken to get back to the rest area. <laughs> and we get there, and my brother's just hanging out, talking to truckers there in the lobby the whole time. You know, just not, not afraid whatsoever. Jesus did not get, he didn't get left behind. This wasn't, um, the parents weren't forgetful or inconsiderate. The Bible, the, the language of the word is this. He stayed behind in Jerusalem. You know what that is? That's intentionality. That's purpose for this 12-year-old boy. Didn't say he forgot. It wasn't like Kevin McAllister, home alone, you know, wake up and everybody's gone to Paris uh, for Christmas and he's in this 10,000 square foot. He's like, no, this is purposeful. We, we're not 100% sure why, but for some reason, Jesus says, okay, this is my moment. I've got to do this, you know, and he, he stays behind. Um, and he's, again, I told you, this is his 12th time of coming. This is not new to him. He knows the rules. He knows what's expected. He knows who to stick with. But on this occasion, at the age of 12, he just says, no, I've got to do something different. And he allows his mom and dad and cousins and nephews and uncles and all of that to go on their way. So, verse 45. <laughs> they didn't find him. They would come back to Jerusalem searching for him. After, listen to this. Oh, mama's about to lose her mind. After three days, they found him in the temple. Y'all say three days. Do you know the kind of panic that Megan goes through when she can't find one of our children for 15 minutes on our five-acre property? Do you know the panic that rises up in me if I'm at the grocery store and my young seven-year-old boy with some sensory challenges is out of my sight longer than 30 seconds? Three days. I don't know how the conversations went between Mary and Joseph, but I promise you words were had. I promise you there was some marital counseling that need to happen after that. I don't know who decided to call it a day after that first day, but it probably wasn't Mary. It's probably Joseph like, Mary, I'm sure he's fine. We got to get some sleep. And Mary's like still getting a lantern, looking around, going door to door, not going to sleep at all. She probably didn't go to sleep the first night. I don't know. Day two, the same thing happens. And it's every emotion in the world. There's anger, there's fear, there's nausea, there's panic, there's anger. There's lots of anger at Joseph. There's probably lots of anger at other people. There's going to be some anger at Jesus. Whenever I find him, I swear I'm going to tear him up so bad. He won't be able to sit out again. But I love that boy. Where is he? My heart is breaking. Didn't they prophesy that my sword would pierce my own heart? Is this what they're talking about? You know, all kinds of stuff. Day, three days of this. Three, three days. Okay, I think I made my point. They found him in the temple. Why didn't they go to the temple? Never mind. I don't know. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, 
listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. So you got mom and dad and all the people that are having an apoplectic fit for three days. And Jesus is just hanging out. Where did he sleep? Where did he get food? It's like he just like slept on the floor of the temple or maybe a rabbi invited. Who knows? We don't know. All we know is that when they found him in the temple, they're losing their minds, but Jesus is in perfect peace. And he's having this conversation with all the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other people there. And this is crazy. Look in there. He's listening to them and asking them questions. You see that? That's, that makes sense. That's what you do when you're 12 and you're a, bar, you're a son of the law. You're a, bar, you're a bar mitzvah. You go and you ask. Ask the teachers. You know, who created God? You know. How big is God? How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? How do they fit all those animals on the ark? Did Joshua, did the sun really stand still? So he asked questions. But look what it says. Listening to them and asking questions, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. So the kid's not only asking questions, he's giving, this, he's giving the answers to the questions he's asking. Or maybe he's answering their questions. Who knows? But there's something about this encounter between this young Messiah and these teachers of the law. And they look at him and they say, there is something different about this bar mitzvah, about this son of the law. We have never seen such profound wisdom in someone so young. Where did you get this? Who is your father? He must be someone great. Who did you study under? Oh, my dad's a carpenter. <laughs> where, where do you live? You must be from the nicest quarters of Jerusalem. Oh, no, I'm actually from Nazareth. And they're astonished. And they're confounded and they're offended, maybe even. And Christ has been a scandal on. He's been a, a rock of offense from the very beginning. So they heard him and they're amazed by his understanding and his answers. Jesus asked the questions, but amazed with his own answers. Verse 48. His parents saw him. They were astonished. So all the people are amazed at his answers. His parents come in. They're astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Hmm. I'd love to know the real, the real, the real thing that she said. It's not been, it's not been uh, filtered somewhat. Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. He said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Man, there's a, there's a, there's a whole message just in, in, in those words. We look for Jesus everywhere except the one place that we know he is. We search for him everywhere and we don't even see him because we're not looking in the right place. You see the contrast here, by the way? Mary comes in and she just unleashes on him. She scolds him, reprimands him. All the emotions come pouring out of her. Anger and fear, sadness, relief. 
She says, Jesus, listen to me. Your father and I have been looking everywhere for you. And what does he say? Why are you looking for me? Don't you know that I'm in my father's house? Do you see that? Do you see that? You see what happens there? He's referring to a different father, obviously. He says, no, 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 mama. He doesn't say this, but the, 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 the implication is the same. Mom, you've got it wrong. I love Joseph. I love you, my earthly parents. But I'm in my father's house with a capital F. Didn't you know that I would be? Don't you know that this is where I belong? What, why would you waste three days? Don't you, would, wouldn't you know, mom, that this is the one place that I long to be in the house of my father in his presence? And there's another translation that says this. Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? How many of your Bibles say father's business? Some say house, some say business. That says house. I think the King James says my father's business. But that's his defense. Kids have defenses. Kids have reasons. They've got their, their explanations and their alibis. Jesus is this. Jesus is like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. I'm in my father. I'm doing my father's business. There's stuff here that I've got to do. So um, it could mean... It could mean several things, depending on how you translate it. It could mean my father's house, meaning the temple. Or it could mean, don't you know, I'm about my father's business, meaning his agenda. Either one is true. Doesn't really matter because they're both the same thing. You can't be in the father's house without being steep in the father's agenda. And his agenda is for you to come into his presence. That's what it is. So what's the father's agenda for Jesus? What's the father's business for the Messiah? It can mean a lot of things theologically. The father's business for Jesus was for Jesus to become the word made flesh. That's one of his assignments. Son, I want you to go. I want you to take on human flesh and blood. I want you to become the word made flesh. His business also could be the salvation of the world through the death on the cross. Son, I want you to go. Not only are you going to take on flesh and blood, but you're also going to lay down your own life. You're going to die an atoning death for my children. It could mean that. That's part of the father's business. The, father could all, the business of the father could also be the miracles and signs and the teaching that he did when he was on earth. All of those are parts of the father's agenda. It could also be the making of disciples, the calling of disciples, the building of a church. All of that is the agenda of the father. Those are true, but I think probably that's more than what was intended for a 12-year-old boy to take on himself. I don't think that Jesus was thinking all of those things when he said, my father's business. I think it's something a lot more ordinary. And I want to give you three things from, from this that, that I believe sort of summarized the next 18 years of his life. That's a long time. That's a long time to, to, to not... To, to be really ordinary, you know? And I know a lot of us have extraordinary gifts. You have extraordinary callings. You want to see your kids do extraordinary things. But I gotta tell you, there's a whole lot of in-between, between the promise and the fulfillment. 
between the anointing and the coronation, there's a whole lot of ordinary in between that is not very exciting and nobody wants to write a book about it. But I got to tell you, that, is, that time is so important because it lays the foundation for what's going to come in Jesus' life. I see three things happening here. I see there is the business of waiting. Doesn't make sense, does it? The business of waiting. Verse 43 says, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem, listening and asking them questions. The Bible talks a lot about waiting on the Lord. Waiting is not a passive, it's not going to sleep. That's not waiting. I do sometimes go to sleep if I'm waiting on my family. You know, if I'm waiting wherever, I just get tired. In the Bible, though, waiting is active. You know, those who wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles. They're, they're such, there's an action to this. And it, it, it's, it's not so much about just being sort of turned off as it is being tuned in to what the Lord is, do, that the Lord is doing. He's listening. He's asking them questions. I remember in 2015, five and a half years ago, uh, I just had an encounter with the Lord that, that altered the trajectory of, of my life. You know, I began to hear the voice of the Lord in a, in a supernatural way. I'd never heard it that way before. The Lord began just to speaking to me directly, almost out loud, but it wasn't out loud, but it was so out loud that it, you know, got, it caught me off guard. And he began to tell me things. Um, and I began to talk to the Lord and ask him, why, why don't I hear you this clearly? And he said, because you don't listen very well. It's a true statement. I don't listen very well. I have to force myself to slow down and wait. And Jesus is in this place of having to wait and seek after the Father to understand his place in the kingdom. He needs to understand. It's not just downloaded to him at birth. He didn't just like all of a sudden at 12 know everything about who he is to be. There's a learning that has to happen. There's a, there's a, there's a, a questioning and a seeking and a waiting that has to happen. Remember the, one of the movies um, about Superman. I don't, I don't remember which one it was, but you know, it shows a picture of young Clark Kent. He's about this age. He's about 12 or 13. He's really kind of going through some hard times, you know, wrestling with his identity in, in, this, in this particular movie. You know, and he's wrestling with his identity. He knows that he's not of this world, but he's got this loving father. You know, um, um, Jonathan, Jonathan Kent, I think is his dad's name. And he's like, he's like, Dad, listen, can I, Dad, can't I just keep pretending that I'm your son? That's what he says to him. He's tired of, of feeling this pull. Jonathan says, listen, you are my son. But somewhere out there, you have another father too who gave you another name. He said, I sent you here for a reason, Kent, or Clark, and even if it takes you the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is. Jesus is in the same, kind of the same thing, you know, he's, he's learning, discovering, waiting on the Lord, seeking after the Lord, what's, what's my purpose here, Lord? Father, what do you want from me? I can tell you, for you and I, this is, this is so important during the ordinary seasons that we're waiting on the Lord, we're asking the Lord, we're listening to the Lord. Let me give you some practical things for me. This is what I've discovered, is I need to, I need to reduce the distracting noise in my life. I gotta turn off the clutter. I gotta turn off the static. 
I got to do that every day. I've got to find time to, to, to turn down the noise so that I, I can hear what the Father is saying to me. Do you hear me? Position yourself in places and situations where God can speak to you. If you want to hear the voice of the Lord, go somewhere where you know he'll speak to you. Get outside. Go on a walk. Put on a coat. Go for a drive. Find a trail. Go for a hike. Get away from things and spend time with the Lord so you can begin to speak and you can begin to hear his voice again. Spend time with spiritual friends. Spend time with brothers and sisters. You know, begin to, begin to have deeper conversations with these ones that, that, that love you. Don't stick to just the surface. Say, you know, let me ask you a question. What do you see God doing in my life? Do, do, do you see me growing? Do you see me maturing? Tell me about that. And just begin to have some spiritual conversations. The business of waiting, actively waiting. You know what the Bible says, Jesus says? He says, seek first the kingdom of God. There's this, this idea of seeking after. So that's the first thing I see Jesus doing. I think he does it there. I think he does it when he gets home every season of his life. He's waiting on the Father, seeking the heart of the Father. That's one thing. Let me give you another one. Verse 51. The business of obeying. Obeying 51. When he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. If you know, if you were to Google, if you were to Google obedient, do you know what type of responses come up more than any other response? Gretchen, it's kind of like what you were talking about here a minute ago. Dog training. How messed up is that? That the one thing that we associate with obedience is dog training. And it's, we've got this mind, some of us in the world, we have the mindset that, that what obedience means is do what I say. You know, like a, like a, like a, like jump, sit, lay, fetch, speak, all those kind of things, you know. And that's, that's not what God has in mind. God does not want a, a robotic automatic knee-jerk response like we're dogs and he's got a shock collar on us that's that's not what he wants my definition that i wrote down is is entrusting obedience is this it's not the same one that i taught my kids by the way it's a different one taught them something different it's a little bit deeper entrusting my welfare and needs to another while yielding to their guidance and control so it is the action of yielding to someone else to call the shots because I'm trusting them for my own good. I think that's what God has in mind for us. You know, so his parents, he has spent three of the best days of his young life. He is in, he is in Jerusalem. You know, there is no comparison between Jerusalem and Podunk Nazareth. It's like being in LA or coming back to wherever, Wilmore, Kentucky. There's no, do you know what's in LA? It's every possible cool thing in the world. They got this and this and this. And Jesus is having the time of his life for these three days in Jerusalem. And he's got to go back to Nazareth. Really? There's nothing there. There's no comparison. But it says that he, he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. That's a, that's a big line right there. That sets in motion the trajectory of Jesus' life. He is practicing obedience to his earthly father that will prepare him for obedience to his heavenly father. 
He is yielding the next 18 years of his life saying, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And he establishes a character of obedience in small ways, season after season, not just saying it, but saying it with joy and trust. So I'm wondering how we can be better at the business of obedience. A couple of things that I'm thinking for myself. Be subject to someone. Be accountable to someone. Who are you accountable to? Who are you subject to? Kids and teens, obvious one is your parents. I think there's others, though, that you can hold yourself accountable to as well. You can be subject to godly friends, godly mentors. Moms and dads, who can we be subject to and connected to? Uh, I wrote this also. Let the Bible be the final authority. Obey God's revelation. What he says to you, do it. Maybe you can practice developing a confessional prayer life. The more sensitive you become to his Holy Spirit, the more he can correct, rebuke, teach, grow. You practice that? Do you do that? Get in the habit of, of, of immediate repentance and reconciliation. That's hard. That's hard. You know, the, you know the biggest thing that, that gets in the way of that is pride. Man, pride is of the devil. Oh, my word. God forgive us. Obedience, the business of obedience for Jesus. Finally, this one, the business of growing Verse 52, when Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew in wisdom and stature. Stature meaning what? Getting tall. Dude's getting tall, man. He used to be this big. Now he's as tall as mama. He's going to be bigger than dad. But he didn't just get tall in height. He also got tall in spirit and wisdom, understanding the way the world works, the way that the, who the Father is, how the Father is in the world, and, and how, how, how he has a place in the world, and what he's supposed to do, how he's supposed to interact with people. He's, under, he's learning, he's growing in all of these things. And the implication of this is that Jesus has to overcome weakness and ignorance. How many of us thought that Jesus was sort of born with like perfect knowledge of everything? Like he was like this living encyclopedia. Like he just started to, to babble and talk when he was five years old. And all of a sudden he starts spouting off quantum mechanics and everything else. Every, every bit of knowledge in the world about everything, Jesus didn't have it all. Philippians makes that clear. Philippians chapter 2 talks about that. It says that he, he laid down, he emptied himself, became the form of a slave. He emptied all that stuff out. Jesus said, I've got, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like, it's almost like a reset, you know? I'm going to like reset and then I'm going to become a human being and learn what it's like to become. He had to learn to read. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to potty train. He had to learn a lot of these things, self-control. Sinless in doing that, but having to learn nonetheless, having to grow nonetheless. And this last point is not so much something that you can do, you can do the business of the first two, the business of seeking or, or, or waiting rather, the business of, of obedience. This third one you can't really do. It's more of a result of the first two. If you do the first two, this third one's going to happen. Third one is you're going to grow, the business of growing. The more that you seek and obey, the more you're going to see growth in your life.
And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That one verse summarizes the first 30 years of his life. No miracles that we know of. No prophetic words, no disciple calling, you know. No attention, no rebuking of Pharisees, none of those, no walking on water, none of those kind of things. 30 years of relatively ordinary, boring life. Not easy, hard life. Hard stuff when you're relatively poor in rural Judea. But I tell you, man, what if, what if we pray this over our kids? We pray great things over our kids. What if we pray ordinary things over our kids? What if we just put our hands in them and say, Lord, I pray that Emma and Josie and Cohen and, what's her name? Lottie. I pray that they would grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. What if, what if that were our prayer? Man. So, this is ordinary time. <laughs> I need some ordinary time. I need to move into a season of, of, of what was the first one? waiting, of actively waiting on the Lord, actively waiting on the Lord. Where is he? What is he doing? What's he saying? Where is he moving? Asking questions, learning to give answers. I want to move into that season. I want us to move into that season. I want us to move into a season of greater obedience. Greater obedience. If we can just, if our response can always be a joyful yes, then to tell you what, it doesn't matter how backward you are, God will do great things through that. But you may have all the gifting in the world, but if you can't give a joyful yes, God cannot use you in the way that he wants to. And the outcome of those things is we're going to see growth. Because I see it in you, I do, I see it in you, I hope you see it in me. We're growing, we're moving, we're maturing. Amen? All right, let's stand together. Can we sing Jim, Jamie, string section? I love that string section. Come on, the cello did it, the cello this morning. I was loving it. Can we do worthy of it all? Is that what we have? Come on, let's do it. All right. So, Father, we are... You're worthy of everything, Lord. We want to follow your example, Jesus. Our only ambition is to be more like you. To do your business, your agenda in your presence. That's what we long for. If people are seeking for us, let them find us there. Because when we seek you, son of man, we find you there. Still, about your father's business in his presence. May others find us there as well.